Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to interview and have conversations with really, really interesting people. Well, I say interesting people, actually what I'm aiming for are those leaders out there, real leaders who are tried, tested and proven in their workplace. These are leaders who I've searched for around the globe, who have inspired me and who I believe have demonstrated what emotional intelligence in practice could look, could look like. So today I'm joined by a gentleman that I've been following on social media for quite some time, to be honest, and I've really been uh, pulled into uh, the stuff that he's doing uh, via his social media. We had a conversation not so very long ago, just a few weeks ago, and uh, I knew that I'd got the right person. I want to welcome to uh, the show today, Barry Boffy, MBE. Uh, Barry, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Now, I've tried to get you on here on this show for so long and I've thought about it and I've thought about it. And you, there's something that happened in your life that gave me the opportunity or the excuse, really, to reach out to you. But before we go any further, I just want to talk about uh, some of the incredible things that you're doing. You're an award winning inclusion and diversity thought leader. Uh, you were voted into top 100 global inspirational EDI leaders in 2021. That's some accolade there and you're a street strategic advisor and director with many organizations on all things diversity and inclusion. So I'm looking forward to having a really good conversation around diversity and inclusion. I think there are so many people who purport to be experts all of a sudden in this specific arena. I've worked in the field of diversity through my work with the Black Police Association for over three decades, uh, but uh, I know that um, all of a sudden, and I think it was since last year, really, or since 2020, that all of a sudden I'm seeing this plethora of EDI people out there, EDI experts. But you've been doing this for some time now, Barry, haven't you? Yeah, on and off, I suppose, for about 25 years. But but the one thing I would say, and I always kind of preface any conversation, is I still wouldn't consider myself an expert, in all honesty. I, That's my philosophy entirely, yes. <laughs> I don't think you can be an expert in all areas, particularly in the kind of, you know, equality, diversity, inclusion, cultural competency field. Um, it's always developing, always growing, always changing. And I think you're onto a bit of a losing streak if you enter into a conversation with this idea 
idea that you are the expert in that particular area. Uh, so no, I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but thank you very much for, for the, uh, <laughs> saying so. I think 25 years, 25 years in this field sort of allows us to think of you as somewhat of an expert, but I completely agree with you on this issue of expertise. Uh, you know, with three decades of leadership experience, I still don't call myself an expert. Uh, otherwise, you lose that sort of growth mindset, don't you? We, we continue to grow as human beings and we have to remain open to new learning. But let's just focus in on this 25 years. Uh, one of my burning questions is, how did you get pulled into the area of uh, equality and diversity and inclusion? You know, how did that all happen? It's a bit of a strange one. I've had a number of conversations before with people who've reached out to me to say, well, how did you get where you got? You know, what what kind of career path or what does the career path look like for people working in equality, diversity and inclusion? And the reality is, I think you probably recognise this and a lot of my colleagues will say the same thing. There is no career path. There's no definable career path that you can really, you know, describe to someone if you do this A-level in equality, then it will take you on to a university degree and et cetera, et cetera. I think... It has to be experiential and it has to come from within that passion to do the right thing to actually make the UK or, or, you know, the world, you know, effectively a better place for everyone. And so it has to be something that is deeply within you first and foremost. And then it's about taking the opportunities when they present themselves, be that in a paid position or learning about something that you didn't know. So staying curious, you know, I always want to stay curious um, and, then, and then kind of developing from there. But yeah, it, it's a bit of a long and winding road, um, I think, if, if I can describe it in that way. I completely understand it. And, you know, just before we press record for this show, uh, one of the things that we we're talking about, you know, the difference between technical skills and emotional intelligence i think you're just talking right around that subject right now that uh, too often organizations are looking for people with technical skills and when they hire these people they're a bit disappointed because there's no passion there there's no depth to that person so i know that you were the head of diversity inclusion with the british transport police up until recently so you'll understand the police service i did a podcast recently with a deputy chief constable of a brand new police force over in canada it's called the surrey police service and uh, you might want to listen to this uh, shows with Jennifer Highland, who was their brand new deputy chief constable. Now, this police force is literally about 18 months old. And I asked her what her recruitment strategy was going to be. And she said, we're going to recruit based on values and we'll teach the technical skills later. And I thought, this is so incredible. We just wouldn't hear that in a police force in the United Kingdom unless somebody was setting up a brand new police force, I guess. Uh, But it feeds into exactly what you were talking about. So let me talk about this passion. Where does the passion for EDI come from for you? Well, for me, um, I mean, I'm probably going to give my age away a little bit here, which I don't like to do. But um, <laughs> I, I came of age, I, I became a teenager in the 1980s. Uh, so in the 1980s and into the 90s, you know, I, I am a gay man. And I, I kind of became aware of that at a time where, you know, um, society was you know effectively did not accept homosexuality in any way shape or form there were no real role models particularly positive role models that you could see and um, i personally you know going through high school and into my teenage years didn't know anyone who was gay who was openly gay i should say um at that time so it, it was a very lonely kind of you know isolating place and you know 
when you see that representation of gay men in a very negative sense, um, it, it, it kind of creates this environment where you can't be yourself and you can't actually, you know, I, 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 there are lots of opportunities that I think I lost or I didn't chase up because of the fact that I was worried about how I'd be perceived in that environment. Were you literally hiding your sexuality from people? Yes. And I, and I was one of many at that time who would have done so. You know, like I said, I didn't know any openly gay people, male or female. Um, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what the gay scene was. I didn't know how to find that community. You didn't see, obviously, this was pre-social media. So there was no easy access to those communities that um, where you could find your, you know, logical family, you know, the people that you would connect with. Mm. So, you, yes, I, I, yeah, I kept it quiet. I didn't actually effectively... I haven't ever come out and I spoke about this um a couple of weeks ago about you know coming out and it's like well I I actually haven't ever done that and I think it's a generational thing because I you know went through the 80s and 90s at a time where actually um it you know, it was a hostile environment for the LGBTQ plus community um you know things have changed somewhat um still not where we need to be now um but effectively at that time you just it wasn't the environment where you could come out so that's i think where it started um but also i was really lucky to grow up in the west midlands um which was really kind of you know super diverse from a um ethnic minority perspective i went to school with a very mixed school um, and that was normalized for me yes because of course we're, we're we're both from the black country aren't we as well Absolutely, yes. Good old West Bromwich for me. Um, and I, I find, you know, I, I think myself very lucky to have grown up in that environment because actually difference was every day. It was normalised or usualised, I think. I don't want to use the term normal because um, it infers that anything other than is abnormal, but it was usualised, you know, ultimately. So so I, I grew up in that very mixed environment. I saw difference. I saw diversity and the power of diversity, but still within myself, being a gay man, I, you know, it was still quite isolating and quite terrifying. And so that's where my passion has stemmed from. I'm wondering if you had the same experience as myself. So I, you know, I, I very often say that when I joined the police service, I moved from that very diverse West Midlands uh, sort of uh, uh, population to a predominantly white area in Derbyshire. I grew up around about the same time as yourself. I joined the police service in 1983, the, a year before the miners' strike. And I very often describe myself as a brown speck in a sea of white. Uh, and what I realised in my journey as I traversed through the police service was that I experienced all of the the societal definitions of normal and therefore me being abnormal and how that impacted upon me. But as I grew in strength, I also learned what it feels like to be minoritised and and I and I recognised that I was just one one member of one community that was being minoritised, and I think it, impro it increased my levels of empathy with other people who are underrepresented or minoritised. Is 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 that something that you felt as well? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I think you know there's an element of in some environments you can find yourself conforming. Um, you know, and particularly in the policing context, you know, I, I think we've both probably experienced that to some extent in the past where actually you do find that you are uh, not actively, but kind of almost 
surreptitiously hiding elements of yourself so uh, for you that might be your kind of cultural identity or background for me it would be my sexual orientation so i you know i i was changing my behavior in order to conform um and 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 yeah and i think a lot of people will have done that at a certain time and some people are still doing that now you know i i was so surprised um in the last couple of years of my tenure at british transport police to hear from police officers who were joining british transport police quite young people 18 19 20 who were asking me um can i come out is, is this a safe environment for me to come out as a gay man or as a bisexual man or as a gay woman? Mm. And I was shocked by that. You know, this was 2019, 2020, 2021. And I thought, is that still the perception of policing that actually difference is no longer welcome and um, that, that you have to conform, that, you know, your identity is not valuable? Um, and that's, I suppose, some of the work that I was doing and, you know, continue to do, really. See, I find that quite powerful, Barry, uh, that people are still asking these questions questions uh, you know is it okay for me to come out in this organization or this industry uh, and as much as I know the police officers have done so much work around uh, diversity and inclusion but it, it just makes me wonder are we doing the right kind of work is this something else that we can be doing so that people don't have to ask these kind of questions so that people can come to work as their full self and that we have cognitive diversity as well as cultural diversity within the police service and any other organization or industry what do you think we might be missing right now what else could we do do you think we've got to remember that because you know I have been within policing in the last 15 years, so I've seen that change. And mm. I think a lot of the work you were just talking about is happening. It has been going on for quite some time. The reality is that that's not going to change the perception of policing for a lot of people um, because there is a culture, an embedded culture, um, and a perception of what policing is out there for the public, the general public. Um, and that culture change takes years. It's not something that you can just you know, flip a switch or put a few images out on into the public arena and say, look at us, we are different now. Mm, very true. So, you know, even if it does look different, because believe me, it does, <laughs> you know, um, in the last kind of five, six, seven, eight years or so, policing is very, very different. It is full of super diverse people who revel and, you know, in their individuality, in their individual identity. And that is used, um, within policing as being something valuable to policing i've left policing now eight years it's it'll be coming up for eight years this year that i left policing and in that short space of time barry i have seen just through social media i've seen police officers uh, both front end and st strategic talking with a much more human voice now Eight years ago, I was on social media, I was on LinkedIn, but I was one of the very, very few on social media and LinkedIn. And it was it was very much sort of uh, something that we were told not to get involved in too much. But I find now there's a, a different voice out there. There's a much more human voice coming from the police service. Is, is that what you're alluding to yeah oh yeah absolutely and and you know some of that is um is is natural it's just people are you know social media is so prolific now you know everybody uses it so people will but a lot of it is directed and what i mean by that is that you know the senior leadership within police forces are encouraging 
officers to go out there and show your true self, you know, engage with the communities that you are part of, um, you know, show the human side of policing. It's really important that we do that. Um, he says we, and I still use we because I'm not long out of policing. So <laughs> <laughs> I still use we, don't worry. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, a lot of it is directed. It's really important and it is encouraged. And I think that's really healthy. That shows a healthy mm. attitude and change in attitude to the value of, you know, a diverse workforce within policing, particularly. Now, that's going to take time, you know, and the reality is, you know, in the in the current climate, the lack of confidence in policing, you know, it's probably been at its lowest for a long, long time. Um, and, and no amount of, you know, real people, human people going out there and saying, I work in the policing and in the police service and it's different now is going to change that. It's going to take a little bit more time. So, so yeah, there is a disparity between what the reality of policing is and what the perception of policing is, particularly outside. You're absolutely right. And uh, when you talk about bringing about change, in any organisation, not just a police service, it's about understanding that there's a changing dynamic in the world outside of that industry or organisation that we're always going to be sort of playing catch up with as well. So yeah. to change a culture around, I think we have to get into the very DNA of the organisation. For me, when we talk about organisational culture, and I know that we had this conversation before, you say, you know, I don't believe in organisational culture. Uh, and my, my belief around organisational culture is I see the organisational culture as the personality of the organisation, if you like, the brand of the organisation as other people perceive it. So it really is about changing that personality. But in order to do that, we have to get into the DNA, the very DNA of the organisation. And that takes time. And there is still some reticence, you know, from senior leaders. And I, you know, I'm not going to name names or any particular forces or anything. But I, I know for those um, police officers who uh, maybe have, you know, 20, 25 years, 30 years service, um, and that they have a different perception of policing or what policing is now in 2022, uh, or what it should be. Um, so there is still some resistance and a little bit of reticence about the value of, you know, being human, showing vulnerability. You know, I, I, that's one of the biggest challenges that I had um, at British Transport Police is actually allowing officers or encouraging officers to be individual, to show their individual identities, because there was always that perception that actually that's a vulnerability. And you can't afford to be vulnerable as a police officer. I think you're so right. I think one of the challenges, however, with any uniformed organisation going, stretching it beyond the police service is that very often you become aligned to this, what you perceive to be the, the, the personality of the organisation, what sits behind that uniform, what is the service that you do. And in order for you to deliver that service, you have to have a, a harder shell and therefore you have to hide away some of your own vulnerabilities and, and become almost like the Iron Man or the Iron Woman hiding behind this casing of a shell. Uh, and and that, of course, that takes away from your authenticity. So I, I think it, as, as you get into a an organization and you know the people that you describe the 25 26 27 year old uh, year service people we often used to call them dinosaurs i remember <laughs> when i was a, a young young man in policing and people used to say oh he's just a dinosaur or she's just a dinosaur and then i i, I remember pinching myself when i got to around 26 27 year service and i asked myself am i a dinosaur 
uh, <laughs> am I still reticent? Do do am 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 I lacking? Am I am I am I sort of smothering creativity? And I worked really really hard on that as a as a, a senior officer not to become that individual. But I think it's so easy to become that uh, because the, the 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 dynamics, the culture of the organisations is almost ingrained within you by then, isn't it? Absolutely right. Yeah, and there is an element. You know, you, you spoke about uniform. I, I I like to use uniform as a bit of a you know metaphor for it is a uniform you know it's a shell it is purposefully mm. that's why you know police officers in the armed services have a uniform because there is an expectation of um a position of power but also that that uniformity of decision making you know in policing you can't afford really to have five six seven ten officers with all a different perception or take on legislation on the law you know that's that's not going to work for policing um and and all of those things tied so there is a, a need for that uniformity of some kind yeah. but but it's interesting i think back to you know even when i joined policing 15 years ago so back in 2007 which is not that long ago um we understood the the kind of the barrier that a uniform was even at that time and i think probably even earlier than that because and i and i say we understood that because when we did community engagement i remember a lot of conversations about well remember when you go out to the community don't wear your uniform if you're going to have like a, a town hall meeting, take the uniform off, go in plain clothes. And it's like, well, clearly we understood that at that point 15 yeah. years ago. So why do we still struggle with that idea that the uniform is actually a barrier to engendering trust and confidence in the with the community? It's interesting because I never really thought of it in that sense because I remember we were told to take our hats off if we're going to do a delivery, a difficult message, a death message, uh, you know, always come down to their height take your hat off so you know look more human as opposed to more of a police officer be more empathic so we we're talking about empathy back then and i think the other challenge with uniformed organizations i mean you can see over my shoulder here i'm very proud of this plaque with all of my 32 years of uh, boy to man sort of history but you can see within that how difficult it is the higher up you go into any leadership in any organization you will acquire uh, um, uh, maybe some insignia as i've got there or some title or some status or a bigger office or higher level floor whatever it might be in in very uh, in many organizations the the challenge with that is that it creates another barrier for you it actually becomes a bigger challenge for you to remain authentic and to be the human being that you are to bring your full self as a leader doesn't it it really does and, and, and you know I, I i'm sure if you were to ask any senior officer now if you were to ring them up now and just kind of say how empathic are you are you know are you that kind of closed <laughs> off uh, they will say no of course they will no, say no, no. Yes. but but the, interestingly enough the statistics always proved otherwise and i'll give you an example of this you know working as head of inclusion and diversity i saw that um within even in british transport police and i'm sure it's true of other police forces the higher up the rank you got the less information about you was available and what i mean by that is that interestingly enough we could see police officers at you know pc sergeant rank going into inspector who would declare on their self-decoration that they um, had a disability for example and then that disability would disappear 
as soon as they got higher up the rank. So as soon as they kind of hit chief inspector or superintendent, it would no longer be there. And now that's not yeah. looking at individual data because you don't see the name, but you see the ranks. And, and effectively, you, there were no, there was nobody within British Transport Police, according to our statistics, above the rank of inspector with a disability, which we knew was absolute rubbish. We knew it was rubbish. We knew that wasn't true. But it's that it goes back to that vulnerability piece again, it doesn't it? You know, it they, does indeed. Yeah, the senior officers don't want to be seen as vulnerable or actually human in some ways because actually does that then negate their um, their rank, their power? I knew this was going to be a fascinating conversation, Barry, because <laughs> you've now taken me into another favourite area of mine, encompassing leadership, and that is around how to create functional teams within leadership, you know, functional leadership teams. When a team is dysfunctional, you tend to find that it lacks trust. Uh, and, and in order for you to build trust, you have to be much more human. You have to have uh, be able to demonstrate and show your vulnerability and be able to talk about these kind of things. You need to be able to have those brave conversations, you know, those difficult conflict conversations. You need to have healthy conflict, but you're never going to get that if you haven't got the trust. And consequently, you won't get the commitment, you won't get the accountability, etc., etc. Et so you've just picked up on this issue of vulnerability. And, and I think you're absolutely right. And it's not just in the police service. This is way beyond the police service. I think in many, many organisations, when you reach beyond a certain level, you almost feel that you have to demonstrate this, this persona of being super strong, super resilient, uh, super capable. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. Is that because there's a fear that, or do we live in a competitive kind of environment where there's a fear that I might fail and be found out? Is it imposter syndrome? Or is it playing into the DNA of the wider, deeper organizational culture that might exist? I'm not entirely sure. I've never really fathomed that one out, but it exists. It really does. I, I, you know, if I had the answer to that, we would have been able to resolve it a number <laughs> of years ago. But you're right. You do see that, you know, and, and not all the time. You know, I have seen leaders who do kind of talk about themselves and their family mm. and their situation. And, and, you know, I don't see that as a weakness. I see that as making them personable and someone I would want to work with. You know, ultimately, the worst leaders and managers we've ever had, in my experience, at least, are those who are cold, um, you know, close to conversation, don't know anything mm. about them in their personal life, um, and they're authoritative um, or micromanage. And actually, they're not real people. They're, they're almost like just part of that chain of command. Um, whereas the best leaders I've ever had are people who I know quite well. I've got to know. I know them. I know their family. I've met their family. They talk about their family situation, what they do at the weekend. That's not a weakness. That's not showing any vulnerability there. It's showing that you're a real human being. And I'm more likely to want to work for someone like that than I am the other. So I guess, you know, really the challenge is uh, we need to reduce the, the number of robotic leaders who just follow due process and hierarchical styles or positions uh, to having much more transformational leaders or much more human leaders so it's it's a case against the robots versus the humans again isn't it it is yeah <laughs> in, in a sense yeah absolutely inspirational and aspirational they're the people i, I will follow every time 
Yeah, most definitely. Well, here's the thing. So here's that—that that is the challenge. The, the challenge for people like you and I, we're coming, we're, we're trying to achieve the same thing. We're looking at it slightly differently, but we're essentially trying to achieve the same thing. I very often walk into an organisation. I'll talk about the work that I do around, you know, organisational culture, emotional intelligence, and they will say, "Do you know what? Cool. We we and I understand it. I can see that it would be good, but." I can't quantify the tangible benefits or and how it affects my performance, my bottom line. I can't give it the 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 the, the priority that you're asking me to give it. So you must have come up across, across these situations yourself when it comes to EDI. Yeah, it's it's what where's the evidence? Why is this important? Why is it invaluable? You know that there's lots of research out there that actually proves that you know a diverse um, workforce um, is a more productive workforce. You know, a, a workforce that can be their genuine selves is a more productive workforce, particularly in business. Yeah. You know, actually that's quite measurable. There's lots of research out there that says that's true. But actually, when you're in an organisation like in a public sector organisation like policing, well, we're not aiming for profit we're not profit making so so almost it, it you know those kind of research pieces are irrelevant and i think so it means we have to start again with the well, why is this important mm. and i think we've spoken about it already you know about that kind of trust and confidence you know our, our job is you know to work in policing with the community that we serve um yeah. you know we serve that community and if we don't understand that community we don't understand the difference we're not part of that community we're separate to it so i i we can form to an identity we strip away our individuality um and our true identities then actually we're never going to have that trust and confidence we're never going to be able to work so there's part of your evidence for why this is important but actually the you know from an internal perspective you know creating a workspace um where you can be your genuine self you're going to be more productive you know, and again, there's lots of evidence out there saying that if you if you don't have to hide yourself, you know, particularly from a sexual orientation perspective, that's been measured for years and years and years. You know, if it's an environment where you can't come out and you can't be your genuine self, you can't talk about your same sex partner or what you did at the weekend or um it, it, it means that people are constantly guarded and there's a lot of energy yeah. taken up in that you know hiding elements of yourself and it means you're not going to be performing to your best you're not going to be happy you're not going to be enjoying the job and um, you're not going to be contributing in any way so you're going to have a higher you know attrition rate people are going to leave um sooner they're not going to stay because actually why would you stay in an environment for the next 30 years that where you're not welcome and that makes such perfect sense and and i think you're right i think this is something around the public sector where certain elements of the public sector struggle to put things like edi or you know culture right up there at the very top uh, and how you've described it i think is absolutely right now from a, an evidence-based point of view um I, I just want to support what you said i recently did a cultural diagnostic of a healthcare organization 1400 staff now the healthcare has been thrashed over the last two years they've gone through the mill they really have uh, so in healthcare right now they've got highest rates of turnover in recent uh, years there's a, a limited talent pool that they can uh, all uh, hire from. Everyone's competing to hire from the same pond, and that pond is ever diminishing. Uh, stress levels are high. Sickness levels are high. Uh, workload is increasing because sickness levels are, are increasing. So consequently, more pressure has been put on the on the reduced uh, staff that they've got. Yeah. 
that has led to more coercive kind of leadership styles, more autocratic leadership styles, where it's very command and control. All of that, uh, from the conversation that I've had across 30 odd focus groups, 20 odd one-to-one interviews, is that I don't feel psychologically safe. I don't feel valued. I don't feel appreciated. I don't feel happy in my work environment. And consequently, I only do what I can do. And when you hear language like that, you think, what a, what a sad shame, because you've got an incredible individual here. And if everyone is feeling like that, you might have had an incredible organization, but you're going to struggle now to just manage the very minimum if you're not careful. So this is why it's so important to to put people at the very heart of everything that you do. Oh, absolutely. You know, and this is where inclusion and belonging really play their part. You know, we, we speak a lot around kind of the diversity of a workforce. Well, actually, you know, achieving a statistical diverse number, you know, that kind of you know, aspirational target setting when it comes to, you know, in, uh, um, the diversity of your workforce it doesn't help. It's not helpful because if you haven't done the work to make sure the workplace is inclusive, that people feel that they belong and that they're valued for their difference, then actually that diversity is going to change. It's a leaky bucket. You're filling it up and it comes that falls out the hole. So refreshing to him. I often use, I'm going to finish on this analogy. You're speaking my language. I often say, stop going out trying to buy the most expensive fish if when you bring them back you're going to pour them into a dirty fish pond <laughs> and they're not going to thrive then they may not even survive <laughs> barry i can't believe our time is up already i could talk to you for hours but thank you so much hopefully we'll meet up physically at some point uh, i want to wish you well in everything that you do and thank you for everything that you have done so far all the very best thank you very much thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content and of course connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care, have a great day.